And it's a biblical narrative, really, of what God has done for you and I. So when we think about this, we have to understand that there's a a redemptive plan that God has placed uh, from the beginning of time to bring us to the person of Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. And the Old Testament is sort of dripping with it. So let me tell you a couple of things before we kind of dive into a little bit of a recap and get into where we're going today. It was a really interesting time in history, all right? The book of Ruth takes place in the period of the judges. In fact, Ruth chapter 1 says this book basically takes place, the story takes place in the time period in the book of Judges. Now, for those of you that are familiar with history or familiar with Bible history, the book of Judges or the time period of the Judges was a 400-year window between the time that the the, uh, Israelites entered the promised land under Joshua and the time they got their first king. So by the time Saul came in as the first king, the period of Judges, that 400-year period in the time where they entered the promised land and when they got the first king, and it was an incredibly dark and awful time in Israel's history. In fact, the book of Judges, the last verse says that there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And the pattern went like this. People would rebel against God. God would either bring a famine or we'd bring enemies against them. The people would cry out. God would set them free, redeem them. They would live okay for a little while. They'd raise up a judge and they'd live okay for a little while and they'd sin against him again. God would then raise up an enemy or a famine. It would come to the land. The people would cry out. He would hand over a judge. They would listen to the Lord, and the cycle went on and on and on. Some of the great kind of few great judges, people like Samson and Deborah that you may have heard about in your old kind of Old Testament recollection, those folks were pillars during the time of Judges, but there were very few of them. It was a very, very dark time. So this book takes place during that really awful time where you think that God is actually not active. It seems like, God, where are you? Why are all these horrific things happening? seems like God is noticeably absent, but the book of Ruth is actually a picture of God's working and moving constantly behind the scenes to bring about his will, which is one of the great themes of the book. The second thing I want you to know, besides it being the darkest times, is that this book really does drip with gospel truth. It drips with gospel relevancy. It's a love story. It's a story about family love. It's a story about romantic love. It's a story about God's great love for humanity. It's a a story of redemption and rescue, about fear and failure. It's a story about hopelessness being brought to hope. And and these women that we're going to meet, Naomi and Ruth, they're not the main characters. Make no mistake, the main character is God at work behind the scenes, orchestrating and bringing about his plan for the redemptive nature of mankind. And it is a picture of what Christ came to do. And what we're going to see over the next two chapters, the next six weeks, is the sort of picture of redemption that is painted about what Christ is going to end up doing for you and I through this book. And it's an incredible foreshadow of what's to come. So those two things are incredibly important. Now, the bigger question is, how do we get caught up to speed to chapter 3? Because I'm guessing that a large majority of you, or maybe a small minority, uh, have not actually even been a part of any of those sort of studies. So here's the deal. I'm going to do this one time. I'm not going to do it next week. That's the promise. Um, But I'm going to, yeah, exactly. John's like, amen, brother. I'm not going to preach ever again. John's like, yeah, church rocks, man. Um, So I'm going to catch us up to speed really quickly. And there's a lot to cover. I'm going to catch up to speed, and then I'm going to, we're going to get in the first six verses of the book of Ruth. But if you weren't here, this is your like high speed, really bad recap of what's going on. But here's the challenge. Go, go read it. It's two chapters. Read it this week. Get familiar with it. So I'm going to catch up to speed with the story, and then we're going to look at the first six verses as kind of a, a, a bridge from hopelessness to hope. So if you've got your Bible, open it up. Let's take a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll sort of dive into these thoughts together. 
Lord, I thank you that you are a God of redemption, that even in life when things seem uh, just like they're mounting up against us and we can't get around them, God, or when it feels like despair is maybe always in front of us or when it feels like discouragement is there or when it feels like the problems just one after the other or that we're never going to be able to catch our breath or take a breather or just rest, God, and all those things, you are always at work. There is never a moment in our lives where you are not moving. God, your will will always be, and you are always at work towards your good purpose. And so, God, we pray that as we open your word, that's what we'd see in Ruth. We'd see that you are a God who is always and forever moving. And then, Lord, you are drawing us to you, and you are bringing about your purpose, even when it's times, when there are times when it's so difficult to see. We trust that you are a God who is always, always moving, laying foundation stones for your purpose and for greater joy in our life. Take a moment in your heart and just ask God to open your heart to his word this morning, that he might uh, teach you something, maybe something new or fresh, maybe he'd help you see this book in a different light, whatever that may be. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Ask that God would move in their lives this morning. Lord, we thank you for your move in advance. We thank you that you are a God who is in all and through all. We trust you. We lay our lives at your feet. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. So penetrate our heart with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys in the back are going to get a double lesson. You'll get mine and Stephanie's. So, you know, we can measure later. But I bet hers wins because she's probably standing on the table down there telling stories. So, um, okay, so here's where we are, all right? It's taking place in the time period of the book of Judges or during the Judges period. It's an incredibly dark time, and a famine has hit the land. So the people are living in the town of area, actually more than a town, it was a whole region of Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. That's what that word means. And they're living in Bethlehem, and they are choosing to live apart from God. They are chasing their own desires. And a famine hits the land. And famines come in all sorts of shapes and sizes for all kinds of reasons throughout Scripture. But almost always, it's expressly a move of God to draw his people back to himself. Almost always. So a famine hits the land, and the people are without food. They are basically starving. Right, And so there's a man that we meet in the first chapter named Elimelech, whose name actually means my God and my king, and he's married to a woman named Naomi, and her name means pleasant and lovely. And they have two children, Malon and Kilion, and their names aren't quite as good, sickness and death and weakling and struggle, right? Those are their names. So we've got my God, my king, and lovely and pleasant, and death and dying, and weakling and sickness. So they're maybe good at a lot of things, but naming children they're really, really bad at. So... They've got this family. And Elimelech looks at his family and he's like, I can't provide for them, him. We, here, we are wrestling with trying to even find food. We are, we've got to leave. And so Elimelech up and leaves a promised land, the very land that God has led the Israelites to and said, I will forever take care of you if you follow me. Promised land, the land that means house of bread. And he heads for the land of Moab, which is about 55 miles, give or take some miles across the way. And the Israelites hated the Moabs. They hated the Moabites. They couldn't stand them because they were actually descendants of Moab. All right, And Moab, his people came from an incestuous relationship that he had with his own daughter. And the Israelites believed that they were unclean. They also worshipped a false god named Chemosh. So the Israelites didn't want anything to do with the Moabites, but there was food over there. 
And so Elimelech says, I'm going to take my family and I'm going to go over there to find food because that's where we're going. Well, they get their lives over there into Moab and they're living life. And as you can imagine, they begin to sort of sink their life into that culture and whatnot. And the, the sons actually marry. They marry Moabite women. Now, technically that wasn't forbidden, but it was really looked down upon because the Moabites didn't believe in the one true God. They worshiped a God named Chemosh who was not Yahweh. And so to intermarry like that, while expressly not forbidden at that time, was actually kind of really a bad thing because those people weren't even allowed to worship in the temple. It's a long story. But they married Moabite women. They're probably the only followers of God in the country. And so what were they going to do in order to keep their families going? These sons married Moabite women. Well, soon after they moved there, Elimelech dies. And not too long after that, both the sons die. With the kind of the, the horrific irony and all that as they were trying to escape death by fleeing to Moab, and that's what they found when they got there. So what's happening now is that Naomi and these two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, are left without husbands. Now for most of us in our culture, that's not, I mean, the tragedy alone is awful, but a, but a female can very much survive and thrive, right? But in those cultures in that time, it was, it was no hope. A woman couldn't work, she couldn't provide for herself, unless she had a son or a husband, she was basically kind of riddled to a life of poverty. And there were a lot of laws written into the Old Testament kind of picture of God's plan for Israel about taking care of widows. But they weren't living over in Bethlehem and in Israel. They were living in Moab. And so basically, their lives were reduced to fear and hopelessness and a lack of everything. They've watched all these men in their life die. We don't have any circumstance from the book, how or why. We just know that they are no longer alive. And these three women are thrust together through this sort of moment of tragedy. Well, as it would happen... Naomi gets word that the famine is over in uh, Bethlehem. God has come to the aid of his people, and there is food again. So here is Naomi, having fled that land, brought over here, lost both of her sons and her husband, joined together with these two Moabite daughters-in-law now, and now she's heard that the famine has been lifted and that they've got plenty of food. So she weighs her options and basically says, I have nothing. My life is hopeless. The only chance I have to even survive is to go back home. So that's what she decides to do. She looks at her daughters-in-law and she says, we're going, we're going to go to Bethlehem and I'd like you to come. And they said, yeah, sure, we'll go with you. That's great because we're bound together, right? You are now our, our quote-unquote mother. We are part of this family. So they gather their bags and they're about to set off on this 55-mile journey by foot over to Bethlehem. And they get like, oh, I don't know, half a mile in. And we get this picture that, Ruth, or that Naomi stops them and just says, wait, wait, I can't do this to you. I can't take you with me because my life is a train wreck. It is a disaster. I'm bringing you with me, and actually I'm bringing you to a life of despair. God is against me. He has put his hand against me, and my life is in shambles. And if I take you with me, I'm going to lead you straight into that mess. So here's what I need you to do. I want you to go back. Go back to your own families. Ask them to take you back. Marry in your own context. Find a husband and build your life because I can't give you anything. Even if I was young enough to remarry and have sons, what, are you going to wait for them to grow up? She goes, that's ridiculous. Just go back. And both women say, no, 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 no. We're coming with you. And they all hold each other and they weep and they cry. And Naomi puts her foot down and says, no, your life has to be here. If you go with me, your life is over. It is ending. It is helpless. So Orpha says, okay, I'm going back. She grabs whatever stuff I guess she had and she heads back. But that's the picture in Ruth is that Ruth clings to her. Chapter 1, she clings to Naomi. And then she makes this really famous speech that sort of is a, a central anchor point in the book where she says, 
She basically says, listen, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates us. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth says, I'm coming with you. I will be yours. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. I will die where you die. And and Naomi looks at her and says, okay. So they journey back to Bethlehem, and as they get there, the whole town is stirred. There's a Hebrew word called wadahum that's used that basically means this mixture of chaos and excitement and screaming and yelling. And Naomi has returned, but she doesn't return with her family. There's no Elimelech or Melon or Kilion. There's none of those things. It's just one Moabite woman coming back with Naomi. And it was a huge deal when she left. Because to leave the promised land, right, was a massive deal. There's probably a whole lot of whispers and things. But to come back empty, right? And they said, can this be Naomi? They basically said, can this be lovely and pleasant? And Naomi says, don't ever call me that again. Don't ever call me Naomi. Don't ever call me lovely and pleasant. Instead, I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter, because God is against me. So she says, change my name. And Naomi is miserable, and maybe rightly so. Her life is a mess, and she has zero hope. And as we finish chapter 1, they're coming into the, to Bethlehem as the barley harvest is beginning. Well, as it turns out, they're not quite as abandoned as they think they were. There's this guy named Boaz who's actually a member of Naomi's bigger family. And chapter 2 tells us that he's a man of standing and character. And then we sort of get left there for a minute with this glimmer of this guy named Boaz and Naomi and Ruth that living in poverty as widows and totally helpless. Well, Ruth has a plan. She says, here's the deal, Naomi, we can't just sit here and die. So why don't you let me, give me permission to go outside of town to the fields where they're harvesting barley and ask permission if I can glean the field. And glean the field means that they would walk behind the harvesters on the edges of the field and pick up any leftover throwaway trash grain. It was actually a a piece in the Hebrew law that allowed for the widows and the orphans, right, and the poor to glean the out edges of the field. In other words, pick up the trash that the harvesters missed. It was a way of providing for them because the overriding principle of that agrarian society that the Hebrews were living was that the land, even though it had individual landowners, belonged to the Lord. So even though you may own the land, it actually really belonged to God, which would be a revolutionary concept if you and I actually bought into that. That my life, right, even though I own my car, my house, my thing, actually all my stuff belongs to the Lord. If we really bought into that, it would change everything. But this is the principle at play. And so there was space for widows and for the poor to come in on the outside of these fields and pick up trash. And Naomi knows that, and Ruth knows that. And so she says, let me go ask permission. And Naomi grants her that, and she goes out into the outsides of Bethlehem, and she begins to ask permission. The first field she comes to, she asks the former for permission to glean, right? And that's the field that just happens to belong to this guy named Boaz, right? As a matter of fact, right, God is at work, belongs to this guy named Boaz. She's been gleaning all day, and sure enough, about in the afternoon, Boaz shows up. And he greets his workers, and he says, the Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord be with you. And he looks around, and and he sees this woman out on the edge of the field gleaning, and he looks at his foreman, and he says, whose woman is that? Not really kind of reading it into our context, but really, where does she come from? It's not a derogatory statement. Where does she come from? And the foreman says, you know who that is? That's Ruth. She's the one that came back with Naomi. Remember, the whole town was stirred. That's, That's Ruth. He said, tell me about her. He said, she's worked incredibly hard all day long in the Middle Eastern sun with one short rest in the shelter. So Boaz goes up to her and he says, daughter, 
which is crazy. But he says she's a Moabite. Everybody hates Moabites because they're descendants of sin and they worship a different God and all those kind of things, or at least that's what we knew about them. Boaz says, daughter, here's what I want you to do. Don't go to any other fields. I want you to stay here. I want you to stay with my serving girls. And I want you to glean among them and work among them, okay? And if you get thirsty, I want you to go and go to the water jars that the men filled this morning, which was also crazy, and I want you to get a drink from there. And then after that, he says, you know what? At mealtime, he invited her to come and sit at his table, which he prepared. And he served her roasted grain, and she's sitting there with the real harvesters, this foreign woman, this sort of hot, sweaty, dirty, poverty-stricken mess. And he says, sit here, let me serve you grain, which is this incredible picture of, of, of the owner of this land serving the least, right? It's an incredible gospel picture that we'll see there. He serves her grain. She has eaten so much, probably the best meal she's had in such a long time. She isn't living in poverty. She has enough left over, and, and she kind of sacks it all up. And he tells her to stay in that field. And he tells his men that work there, he says, don't you touch her, because that was a real problem. In that culture, in that society, if you were a foreign woman, your life was always at risk from all kinds of things, as you can imagine. And he looks at his men, he says, don't touch her. And what's more, even if she goes and kind of comes in the field and starts picking among the sheaves, the good stuff, he said, don't you embarrass her. You just let her do it. He said, actually, in fact, what I want you to do is I want you to reach into the bundles and I want you to pull out the best grains that we have and I want you to lay them on the ground and let her pick them up. Unbelievable. And, and he looks at all his men, he says, what are you going to do? So she began to do that all day long. They were picking out grains and laying them on the ground. She came by, and at the end of the day, she threshed all of that, right? Which means she sort of beat it by hand, and she turned it into flour or whatever process is. And it says that she had about what equates to about six, five to six gallons of barley. Now, for you and I, no big deal. However, you got to understand that men and workers were often paid a wage, and the wage was also often in product. It wasn't very seldom in cash or whatever, and they were usually paid about a pound of uh, kind of whatever that is for every one or two days. So here is Ruth that just gathered six pounds of barley, basically, you know, almost a full, full week's worth of work, amount to a couple thousand dollars, pounds of stuff, and she walks it back to Naomi, and Naomi is blown away. She goes, what in the world happened today? She goes, you're not going to believe it. The field I found myself in, Boaz, who we knew was actually a man of standing, he had incredible favor on me. And Naomi says, and, and she looks at Naomi and she says, he actually said I could stay for the harvest, the whole thing, another seven, eight weeks. And Naomi is like, unbelievable, that God has begun to show us this kindness. And in verse 20 of chapter 2, the whole story turns. And Naomi's heart is rendered to the kindness of God. He hasn't forgot us. And she looks at, at uh, Ruth and she says, then stay, then stay. And chapter 2 sort of ends with the promise of the ability to stay. But you get this sense that something is happening. So we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 3. And we're not going to do a lot with it, but I want you to see some pretty interesting stuff that's unfolding. Now the book gets a little weird from here on out, right? Because culturally, there's some very big differences between what was happening there and you're going to see and what's happening now. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Ruth chapter 6. So we're not going to do that next week, I promise. So, you know, that's the deal. We're just going to start. All right, so here we go. Ruth chapter 3, one day, her mother, one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whom, whose servant girls you have been a kinsman to ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know 
uh, what you are thinking until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered, and she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. That's kind of weird. So Naomi says, hey, I got an idea. I got an idea. You know, this Boaz guy, isn't he a kinsman? They both know that he's a kinsman redeemer. Let me tell you a little word about a kinsman redeemer, which is a totally foreign concept to us, but was actually very much a part of society back then. A kinsman redeemer was a person, a man in a family context who had the right to buy back lost or purchased property and people within a family. So if someone sold themselves into servitude or slavery because they owed a debt, the kinsman redeemer could come in and purchase them out of it. He was the only one that could do it. And there are usually four or five men in the family that had that sort of connected kind of uh, role. And they were all in a hierarchy. So the one at the top had the first kind of say over all of it. And then he passed on it, sort of moves on down. But a kinsman redeemer could come in and purchase people out of slavery in their family, purchase property. If you sold a piece of property, the actual kinsman redeemer had the right to come in and buy it back, even if you had already bought it. The guy could come in and actually say, yes, she sold that or he sold that to you and we don't want to do that anymore, I want it back. And you can't say, no, he has, you have to let him buy it back. It was part of this role of kind of God's move in being able to redeem, all right? So the, part, the reason is, is because families were so important. And when you get in a desperate situation, sometimes you do desperate things. And so if you get a place where you are saddled with debt and fear and threat, you may sell something. And then two weeks, three weeks, two years later, you may wish you really didn't do that. Well, the kinsman redeemer had to come in to redeem the family and purchase that back. Also in a culture that was a lot of servitude, he could come in and purchase people back and redeem scenarios and situations because family names were so important. All through the Bible we see genealogies. The reason there's genealogies is because who you're related to mattered. Now, in our culture, man, it doesn't matter. Nobody really cares. But listen, in those days, it was huge, huge. So they learned this Boaz as one of these kinsmen redeemers. And Naomi has a plan. She says, why don't we figure out a way for you to find a life? That's her plan. Because in chapter 2, her whole mindset changed. Naomi goes from this sort of deep despair and sort of woe is me and my life is a disaster. And she begins to awaken to the hope of God. And she develops a plan. And part of that plan is, I want Ruth to have a life. And so she says, listen, I've got an idea. Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, why don't you pursue him? And here's how I want you to do that. She says, I want you to wash, which, again, we take for granted. Most of us do that once a week, right? At least, maybe. (laughs) Maybe twice. So, wash. Which is a big deal. She's working outside all the time. They don't probably don't have access to real water. I mean, it's in the middle of the desert. Running water is not an option. It's a big deal to take a bath. Wash. Perfume yourself, which was incredibly expensive. Most likely, they owned none, had to borrow, or the little bit they had, right, was for a special purpose like a funeral or something along those lines. Perfume yourself. In other words, put that expensive things on yourself and put on your best clothes. Now, This is not best clothes like you're thinking. Like put on that little cocktail dress or whatever. This was probably in the range of some type of burqa that covered her entire body minus one eye, right? Because in that Middle Eastern culture, as even is kind of echoed today, there is a huge emphasis on modesty and all kinds of things. So put on your best outer garments, really is what that means. Cover yourself, right? 
and go over to the threshing floor where they're all, and basically during the harvest, they would spend all day, every day there, and they would harvest, and they would thresh, and they would winnow, which basically they would take a fork and throw it, and they let the wind blow the chaff out, and the grain would fall, and they'd scoop it up, and they would spend all their life around that, and they would eat there, and they would do all in the evenings, they would eat and drink there, and she says, go there, right? And wait, and don't let him know what you're thinking, which really probably means he's not going to recognize you. You're covered in head to toe like one of his serving girls. Don't tell him what the plan is. And then when he's, he's eaten and he's, and he's had a bunch of drink and he goes over by the grain pile to lie down, right? Because that's what happens after you have a good night. You lie by the grain pile, right? So he lies by the grain pile to make sure no one steals it most likely. And when he does that, go over to him, lay down next to his feet and uncover them, right? And he will tell you what to do. Now, I'll tell you, this, for those of you that are single, like, this is not the way to go and find a husband. Can you imagine in our culture how sexually suggestive that is? Like, you know, I met this dude, he was cut out by a pile of dirt laying there. He's covered up a little bit, so I slid over there and uncovered his feet. He wakes up, he's like, hey, what are you doing? You're like, hey, you married? No? You want to? Okay. Look. The guy that's sleeping by the dirt pile, not your best interest, right? Just me telling you as your pastor, look for him somewhere else. However, in that culture, this was actually not crazy. It was part of what they were doing. And I'm going to explain all the symbolism to you next week, all right, because there is an incredible amount of symbolism in God covering with wings and all kinds of very cool things. But this was not crazy. And it's not actually suggestive at all, as it sounds to us. She wasn't trying to entice Boaz into some kind of romantic or sexual relationship so that he had to marry her. wasn't doing anything like that. It was actually a symbolism for covering, and I'll, I'll explain that next week. But this is the plan. She goes over there, she's going to uncover her feet, uncover his feet, and she's going to wait for him to tell her what to do. And you know what? You'd think that Ruth would be like, whoa, what? But instead she says, her only response to Naomi is, okay. She does exactly what Naomi tells her. And she goes over there, she waits, Boaz falls asleep, and she does that. Next week, we're going to look at what that turns into. Now, here's where I want to wrap today, is that sometimes, you know, we feel the need to have these sort of great kind of applications where it's like, you know, I've got these great three points, and we end with this thing, and everybody walks out going, man, that was the most challenging thing ever. Now, here's the deal, is that sometimes Scripture doesn't leave us there. And so rather than just sort of force something and make sure that we have some kind of little application, everybody walks out feeling really good about their church experience, I want to leave God's Word hanging for you. What is God doing here? Because there's something at play about the idea of hope that is really significant here. Naomi was hopeless, completely and utterly hopeless. Her life was a despair. She has gone from having a family and a husband and sons, which meant having a respected life and a provided for life, to having those things torn from her. But in the end of chapter 2, we see her move to hope. What has changed? Has the fact that she's lost her husband and son changed? No. I guarantee you, she grieves them deeply. And there are probably those moments where she wakes up in the middle of the night just in sobbing tears because she lost the men that she loves. Having hope does not mean that we erase the tragedy from our lives, right? But something happened in Naomi where she was awakened to the kindness and love of God, and it changed her outlook. And she developed a strategy and plan to move forward with her life. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but I I really think it is. Because here's the deal. When we live in hopelessness and despair, when we let the lies of the world tell us things about our life that we will never do, never accomplish, never be, when we experience great loss and great struggle, when we have those moments in our life where we feel like nothing will ever get better, 
we tend to be really forgetful in the way that we think that God is moving because he seems so absent. And when we live in hopelessness, we're oftentimes rendered motionless, spiritually, emotionally, and even sometimes physically. It's one of the great tragedies of depression, real depression, is that real depression limits us motionless, spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. When we're living in that place, there seems to be no way to move forward. Now, most of us in here have probably not been riddled with deep depression where it's got us to a place where we didn't want to wake up and get out of bed. Maybe some of you have. But on some level, all of us have experienced those times where we say, God, where are you? Why do I feel like I'm in the exact same place spiritually that I've been? Or why do I feel like you're so absent? Or why do I feel like everything just keeps hitting me and hitting me and hitting me and I can't seem to even get one breath in? And even though everything looks great on the outside and I show up and I shake hands and everybody thinks my life is wonderful, I am as empty today as I've ever been. Those are very real things. And when we live in that kind of hopelessness, we're rendered motionless. But what happened to Naomi is that she was awakened to the hope of God. When she saw God's move around her, when, when Ruth comes back and says, you're not going to believe what happened. That Boaz guy you talked about, look at what he did for us. And you know what Naomi's response is? He, not meaning Boaz, meaning God, has not shot, stopped showing his kindness to us. See, Naomi was awakened to the kindness of God. And that changed her life. And all of a sudden, she developed a plan for not only her future, but she began to fight for Ruth's future. Remember, Naomi's life was just wrapped up in her. I am bitter. I am broken. I am a mess. Go away from me. God is against me. Me, me, me. When she catches a glimpse of the hope of God, she says, I want Ruth to have a life. See, her whole outlook changed. Part of the challenge for you and I in living it, going from hope to hopeless, or from hopelessness to hope, is to awaken to the God around you, to awaken to God's move around you, to realize that even in those moments of great despair and struggle, God has not left you, He has not abandoned you. Even in the moments of great tragedy that, that Ruth and Naomi were experiencing, or the loss of the husbands and sons in their life, God was not absent. He was bringing about His redemptive and perfect plan. God was always at work with His will. Can we explain all that? No. Can we ask why? Certainly. But it doesn't change the fact that God is at work. Right now in your life, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're dealing with, God is not absent. God is at work for his glory, and he's laying foundation stones in your life for greater joy. For some of us, it's time to awaken to the hope of God. Naomi did not pull herself up by her bootstraps and just get out of bed and make it happen and set a plan and say, I'm going to conquer this. She was awakened to the hope of God. The American kind of Western lie is that when we fall down, we've got to pull ourselves back up. The truth of a follower of Christ is, I don't pull myself up. God awakens me to his goodness, and it makes me want to move. And that's what Naomi's experienced. She's awakening to the move of God, and it makes her want to have a plan for her life and for the people around her. God begins this redemptive process in chapter 3, and it's an incredible story from here on out. It gets weirder, but it's incredibly cool. Whatever you're struggling with today, whatever peace, whatever little thing, God is not absent. He is at move. He is at his move for his will and his glory. And he's laying foundations for greater joy in your life. Ask him to awaken your soul to what he's doing. Just say, God, right now I don't feel you, so I need you to wake my heart up and show me where you are. And I think God hears the cry of his people, and that's exactly what he wants to do. 
This is not just a story about God's great love. It's a story about God's promise of the ultimate great love through Christ. Redemption, we know, is only through Jesus. And this story sets us there. So it's not gospelly absent. It's actually an incredible gospel story, as we're going to see next week and the week after. Once a month, we spend some time together taking prayer needs and prayer requests. We share them as a church. I know we've done a lot today, and I've talked for a whole lot. But I want to do this because it's important. And we can kick it down the road, but part of that wouldn't be our expression. So what we do once a month is we just sort of share some things out loud, things you're wrestling with, dealing with, like prayer over. I jot them down, then we pray for them and offer them up together as a time just kind of coming corporately to the Lord and saying, God, we've got fears, failures, struggles, things we don't know. Um, we need to cry out to you. 